Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Tired of the administrative burden of running your practice? When you sell your practice to Integrated Dermatology, their team of dermatology experts take care of all the back office hassles so you can enjoy more time to focus on great patient care. Plus, you'll remain a full partner in the practice with the flexibility and freedom to care for patients how, when, and with whom you want. Discover your options. Visit Integrated Dermatology at MyDermGroup.com. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology, March 2021. My name is Dr. Brad Glick, and I am a board-certified dermatologist and clinical assistant professor of dermatology at the FIU Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine in Miami. I will be your host. Today's topic, which is part of our series on project management, is best practices in dermatology office staffing. Joining me today is Dr. Hagley. Dr. Hagley is a board-certified dermatologist and received his MD degree at Wright State University, and he also has an MBA with a focus in healthcare. He did his dermatology residency training at the University of South Florida. Dr. Hagley practices general dermatology and also micrographic surgery at Licking Memorial Dermatology, which is a hospital-based practice in Newark, Ohio. Dr. Hagley is also a member, of course, of the Academy's Practice Management Committee, Dr. Hagley, thank you so much for being here. The Academy recently released free online guidance on best practices for human resources and staffing. It is available in the Practice Management Center at www.aad.org forward slash staffing. I want to jump in right away and talk about kind of best practices in staffing our offices. So let's start with the first question. How do you determine whether your practice should keep HR in-house or outsource the service? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the individual practice has to look at their, their overall mission and their business strategy and try to determine where the HR function fits within that strategy. So you have to determine, does it make more sense to keep your HR function in-house or is this something that you want to outsource? And by HR functions, what I'm talking about is the hiring and recruiting of staff, the actual onboarding process, the compliance tasks, such as reviewing the OSHA and HIPAA rules, uh, managing payroll, reviewing employee performance, and then also the benefits management part. How does it work in your practice? At the hospital-based practice that I'm at, it's somewhat of a hybrid. We have the hospital, which is able to manage some of the more general onboarding tasks, such as computer training, we do a bloodborne pathogens training, a harassment training, anti-discrimination, cultural competence, OSHA and HIPAA. We have modules that we can go through, computer safety. And so those are done at the hospital level. But then when a new employee comes into the dermatology clinic, the onboarding is really done at the, the clinic level. And what I mean by that is if we're hiring a new medical assistant, they come into the clinic and we kind of go through the specifics for their day-to-day job with them at, at that time. And you review perhaps even some components of the employee manual, although in your hybrid scenario, it seems like 
the hospital component of it, they would have some of that responsibility as well. In our clinic, we have a, a very large group, a single specialty dermatology practice. And um, ours actually, by contrast, is completely in-house. Uh, we have a full-time uh, HR director uh, with two assistants, uh, and it works quite well. But, you know, one of the things that we were alluding to even before we got on today is that for the solo practitioner coming out into practice, it would seem highly unlikely that one would be able to afford that. And the many services that are available out there, and there are a number of organizations where you can seek out this kind of assistance and have someone take a care of those very same areas that you just alluded to that are, are taken care of for you in your setting. Yeah, there's certainly uh, benefits and costs of keeping these functions in-house versus outsourcing. On the hiring side, one benefit is that if you outsource the hiring, you're going to have a wider search, which you might end up getting better hires because you have a firm that's looking through perhaps a lot more candidates than you're able to do locally. And they're also going to be able to check references and, and get that pool of candidates smaller and hopefully also some better candidates. However, that's also going to come at a, an increased cost because you have to pay for those services. Well, it sounds like a lot of this is clearly based on the type of practice, hospital versus private as you said, yours is, is somewhat a hybrid, very large practice versus smaller clinical practices. And I think for the soloist, a big challenge at minimum. I agree with that. Just from a contrast standpoint, I'm in a single specialty, very large group dermatology practice. And we have over 50 physicians and we have about another 20 mid-level practitioners. And so we have a full-time HR in-house with a singular human resources director and two assistants. So it's very interesting. It's worked quite well, but it's a big challenge. If you're in solo practice, for my optics, you're opening up a practice, you'd almost have to outsource it. I believe the salary of a human resources director is going to be somewhere from some 60 to 75,000 or perhaps even higher. And so that's a big ticket for someone starting out in practice. Right. Or there may even be some hybrid approaches too. I mean, you might outsource some of the HR functions, but then some of them keep in-house. Like, for example, you might outsource the searching for applicants and the preliminary interviews to an outside firm that can kind of really narrow the pool down. And then once they find you some people, well, then you can bring those people in-house and kind of interview them yourself to find who's going to work best for you. You might have an outside firm manage some of the, the onboarding compliance, like they might do the OSHA module or the HIPAA module, but then there's going to be some clinic specific things that you're going to want to keep in-house, the, you know, the EMR training and things like that. It seems to me like in solo practice, as someone grows, that hybrid model actually might work very nicely. Let's go ahead and move on and talk about best practices for recruiting. And, and for this question, let me ask you, how do you determine when and, you know, also how to add an additional, and let's start with clinical staff member. This is a good question. And you really have to go back to your mission and look at your business strategy of what you're trying to accomplish in the clinic. For me personally, I like to be the limiting reagent in the clinic. So what I mean by that is that my pace kind of determines the clinic flow. Uh, so for example, if I see a, a quick acne patient follow-up, and then I go to another room and it's a, a single lesion check that's going to need a biopsy. And so my medical assistant has to set that up. And then I step out and I'm ready to go to another room. 
well, if I don't have a, a third medical assistant, then the medical assistants, they have become the limiting factor. And so then I'm in a situation where if I had an additional medical assistant, then that would allow me to kind of keep flowing through the clinic. You can also do a cost analysis to kind of determine if it makes financial sense to add another staff member. What you'd want to look at is you can calculate your profitability per patient, and then you can kind of look at, well, what is the the cost of adding another staff member? And you can look and, and do the calculation and see that if you add a staff member, but you're able to see an additional two or three patients per day, well, then that may be enough for the decision to make a financial sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. It's all about balancing, you know, the volume and not being overstressed in the flow of your practice on the one hand. And when that magical time comes, when you really can increase that volume, that gets to that very important happy median where it's time to really add on the staff member. What about the non-clinical staff member? I think that when you decide to add a non-clinical staff member, to me, a lot of this comes back to the patient experience. You're, you're trying to make sure that the clinic runs smooth. And so an example might be that you're getting busier and say you have one person answering phones. Well, if new patients can't get a hold of the clinic or if old patients can't get their questions answered, then that's going to be a problem. So that would be an example where you might want to consider adding another non-clinical staff to help answer those phones or do some of those front office tasks so that you can improve your patient experience and, and ultimately provide good quality care. Wonderful. You know, as I'm hearing you talk, one of the things that made me think of is in my practice over many years, and especially the last few years, we've done a ton of cross training. And that includes when we hire our front staff, so our, if you will, non-clinical staff, whether they've had some prior experience or not, we kind of indoctrinate them to learning about the back side of the office too. And the reverse is true as well. And I think that that's been very helpful and actually a very nice transition when we're looking for that key, for instance, clinical staff member that we want to add. So that person who's worked the front, who can kind of work in the back of the office a little bit too, can really serve an important stopgap until we really end up adding in that new clinical staff member. Yeah, I think that's really important to cross-train staff. Another example of when you might think about adding another staff member is when, say, you add another service line. Let's say that you're going to add cosmetic services or patch testing or light therapy, well, then you might need another person that has a particular expertise or someone who can assist with those new services that you're adding. Do you have an individual in your practice that works on, for instance, social media that is so popular and important right now? I'm an older physician, but for those of you that are much younger as you are too, is that something that the hospital works on with you? Or do you have a particular individual that does that within the confines of your clinic? I think it's a pretty important question This, you know, the, the, these days uh, where social media is very important for our communications and our advertisements as it relates to our patients. In our particular scenario, we have the hospital manages the social media side. But I do agree with you that depending on your your practice, having somebody dedicated to that is certainly important. They do promotional work on behalf of the dermatology clinics? That's right. Wonderful. Let's move on and talk about staff management. How do you design an effective performance review program? I think that the performance review, you have to set these expectations that are consistent with the goals of the practice. 
And if you provide written and verbal feedback at regular intervals, that's a nice opportunity for employees to share their thoughts with you. And then also for you to kind of circle back and make sure that they're meeting those expectations that you've set for them. So what I like to do in my particular practice is we meet quarterly with all staff members and the clinic manager. And then what we do is we'll review the employee's performance, address any concerns they have, request feedback from the employee, make sure there's nothing that we need to know about from their end. And then we always document that discussion. The open communication with the employees, I think, is really important because it just gives them an opportunity to address any concerns before they may become problems in the clinic. How do you document that? I'm just curious. Do you have a particular form that you use? Is that something that you've derived from the, the hospital itself in terms of them assisting with human resources, as we'll talk a little bit later on? And as I summarize at the end, too, you know, obviously the academy has their practice management resource center. And then a lot of this information we can actually pull down from the site. What do you have in your practice? It's a standard form where the employee kind of, it just documents the discussion that we've had. There might be the opportunity on there to state some tangible goals. So for example, you had mentioned cross-training. So you might meet with the employee that say they happen to be a medical assistant. And then during that quarterly meeting, you might document that the goal for this quarter is for them to cross-train as a clerk or a MOES assistant or whatever it is. Wonderful. Do you ever find that sometimes if you've had staff members that you discuss the possibility of cross-training and taking on new tasking that you've been met with some resistance? And the reason I'm asking that is because it segues into another question that I wanted to ask you, which is how do you deal with an employee who's not meeting expectations? Yeah, this comes up inevitably. And ideally, when you're doing the onboarding, you go back to the original kind of HR discussion we were having is, you know, you try to find these people that are going to be team players and they're going to want to take on more tasks, but it is inevitable that you're going to find people that just are not a good fit for your clinic. And so this can be an uncomfortable situation sometimes. Probably the most important thing is to document the issues that you're having. Because then you have a trail documenting where the employee failed to meet the expectations of their job. Having an open dialogue is important because perhaps there's some issues where the employee is not meeting expectations, but you can provide them some feedback or some additional training, and they can then get to the level that you expect them to be at. Of course, there's always going to be some times where the employee just is not a good fit and Ultimately, the best decision is for the employee just to part ways and try somebody else. Termination is a very hard thing for any of us in clinical practice. In the beginning, there's always the joy of hiring a new staff member and hope that they'll collaborate with our team because it's all about team building, as you've alluded to before. We believe in our group practice in a three-strike rule, but on the other hand, sometimes in a not so long a period of time, sometimes after just a few months, some individuals, just as you say, are really not the right fit for the practice. Well stated. How do you prepare your office for staff shortages? Yes, this is a good question as well, especially it's timely in the era of COVID because there's going to be times when you have staff shortages. For sure, cross-training becomes really important here because if you have a staff member out, you're going to need the other staff members to kind of fill in the gaps. In my office, we typically operate with two clerks that work up front, and then three medical assistants that kind of help 
in the back with the actual patient care. When one non-clinical or one clinical staff is out, we can get by. And we've kind of built that into our system where we have a little bit of a buffer. It's busier and more things might get put on the back burner. It's a little harder on staff, but we can get by. Now, when two staff members are out, then you really got to almost go into a clinic survival mode. And that can be really challenging. It's tough on staff because it strains them. What we do in that situation is we convert some of our new patient visits, maybe to just site-specific checks and then schedule a full skin exam later or something like that. We really focus on what needs to be done at the time of service only. Anything that can be done after clinic or at lunch, it just gets pushed off. So we can really just streamline the clinic as much as possible. It's not ideal, but it is something you have to be prepared for. I think in smaller practices where you work by having just a couple of medical assistants or one or two upfront uh, staff members could be incredibly challenging. And I'm sure practices throughout the country, and I think we've been able to identify some of this, have been challenged significantly because of the pandemic. So great points. One thing I would mention that in, in my clinic, of course, I mentioned cross-training before as well too. But one of the other things that we have is we have a number of part-time employees. They work limited time during the week for various reasons. It may be child care issues, or we have a few staff members that are more mature staff members who have been with us for over 20 years, and they've cut down on their hours. And one of the nice things there is that we can sometimes plug them in when someone has gone down if they have the availability. And so I think at least for us, just as another set of optics here, that's been another way that we've been able to kind of fill the gap when we have staff shortages. And I think that that has been occurring a lot in this last 10 months or so. How can an office show staff their appreciation? How do you demonstrate the rewarding process, if you will, in your practice? Or what are your optics in terms of kind of a program of appreciation? This is a nice segue from office shortages because it's nice to uh, reward the staff or show them you appreciate them when they're working hard for you. The staff is the most valuable asset. You want the clinic to function as a team. You want everybody to feel valuable. And at least for me, when everything's, when, when everybody's working hard and things are running smooth, it makes the day so much easier. So I can't emphasize enough how important it is to make the staff feel appreciated for the work that they do. You have to find out what the staff values. I'll tell a story about a job I previously had where the employee reward at the end of the year was a turkey. And well, come to find out, a lot of employees don't like turkey. Maybe they're vegetarians. So it's just an example that, you know, you want to dig in a little bit. Talk to your staff. That's what you can do at your quarterly meetings or your employee reviews and try to find out what is it that they appreciate. Is it time off? Is it extra money? Is it gift cards to a local restaurant? It's going to be different in every every clinic, I'm sure. All the above, I'm sure. It's funny, you make me think as well that every single year since the time I've been in my group practice, which is over 20 years in Thanksgiving, all of our staff members, all the practitioners, we all get a all get a Thanksgiving turkey. Publix is the supermarket down here and we get a $25 gift card. It's kind of nice or fun. But yeah, I mean, bonuses, perks, and we said gift cards. Do you have a specific incentive or bonus program for some of the products you may have or procedures that are done in your practice that may be committed to the clinical practice from some of the staff members? 
I'll tell you a little bit about what, what we do here is say it's a, a tough day and we add on a surgery at lunchtime or add an extra patient on. I'll like to buy the staff lunch just to show them that we appreciate the hard work that they're doing. Other things that we've done is we've bought lottery tickets for the staff. When there's a big mega millions, you buy a bunch of tickets and that seems to go over pretty well. It's also, it's good for team building. You can't go wrong with bringing in local uh, treats or, or donuts on Friday. They always appreciate that. And, uh, you know, one thing I'll say that, that might be even more valuable than that is to make sure you're giving them that, that public feedback when somebody does something great. Let them know. Tell them in front of the patient. If a staff member is doing a great job, you know, you kind of acknowledge that in front of the patient. I think that means a lot. And it builds your culture and it makes everybody feel like they're part of the team. And I think that's important. But as far as the specifics of what else can you what can you do for them? We do a, a quarterly bonus, you know, based on how we performed that quarter. And that seems to go over pretty well. One of the things that I do, and it's not economic, and I, I mentioned this before when we talk a little bit before coming on to dialogues, and that is that before I leave every day, just as I did today from the clinic, I make sure that I look at each staff member face to face and say something very simple. And that's the word thank you. We're really very lucky as dermatologists in general, despite a pandemic, and so blessed in so many ways. And, and so saying thank you, I think, is a big deal, and it's a really big deal for me. Any final comments that you want to mention about our staffing and our practices? Yeah, I do want to mention that a lot of this material you can find on the Academy website. There's a section in the Practice Management tab and you go to staffing and there's quite a bit of information just about some of the things that we discussed today, retaining staff, HR decisions, employee reviews, that type of subject matter. You're stealing some of my thunder, Dr. Hagley. Yes, you know, in addition, it's very interesting. The Academy has a wonderful on-demand webinar, which really discusses this very same subject that we've discussed uh, today on Dialogues. And that's actually called the Practice Management On-Demand Webinar Series. And as a segue from what you just mentioned, just for our audience, just remember that a lot of the content that we've discussed today can be found at www.aad.org forward slash staffing, as you alluded to. And if there's questions that you ever have, you can also reach out to the practice center at aad.org. So with that said, Dr. Hagley, it's really been a pleasure speaking to you today. Uh, great job. And I look forward to having some conversation with you again in the future. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.